0: transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four K E Y S that's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: You know, if you look at the marital status or like how many Indian households are like two person households, um, and it's like almost 90%, like most Indian kids come from a household with two parents. But I wonder if we came from a community where people talked about mental health, talked about toxic masculinity and, you know, refused abuse as um, just a part of life. And that's just how it is. And, you know, marriage is either going to is going to be whatever it is. Um, I wonder if that number would be greatly reduced, if there would be more divorces in the Indian community because of that, or even maybe less marriages in the first place at a young age. It's just all of it is so messy and it's so intertwined that when you see something horrible happen to someone else or to yourself, you just don't even know which part of the system to blame.
2: It is my pleasure to have you here. So uh, I found out about your story because you wrote in and when I read it, it was one of those sort of, hell yes, I want to find out more about this person moments. Um, so on that note, I, I want to start asking you where in the world were you born and raised and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career thus far?
1: Mm, that's a good question. I was born in Downers Grove, Illinois. Um my mother had immigrated to Naperville, which is just a couple of minutes away, uh, when she was arranged to be married to my dad, who was living in Naperville at the time. And shortly after I was born, my parents got a divorce. So I moved around a lot following that. So, following Naperville, I lived in New York for a little bit, I lived in New Jersey, I lived in India. Um, so that was really hard, too, being an American kid and then moving to your homeland. Even, and you you look like everyone, but you don't talk like everyone. And everyone's wondering why. Um, and then after that, I moved to Memphis, Tennessee. So I would say the impact that that had on me had mostly to do with, like, my mom's marital status. So when... I was, like I said, shortly after I was born, my parents got a divorce. But then, a couple years after, when I was about five, my mother got remarried, and this was her second marriage. And she was married to just a very abusive person. And that was when I moved to New Jersey. And I never really thought that I always just found my situation to be different than others. Like I constantly romanticized the idea of coming from a nuclear family. Like I wanted a sibling and I wanted my dad to be married to my mom. And I wanted a backyard. Like I was also like, I grew up in apartments my whole life too. So I was very much into the idea of a quintessential American life. And I didn't have that. And on top of that, I I'm Indian. I'm Brown. So I was just like moving around just was another it was like no matter where I moved, that sense of isolation followed me. And when I moved to India, uh, we actually moved to India because my mother got a divorce from her second husband. And we really felt like we just needed to escape. We needed to get away. And that's when we moved in with my grandparents. And that was I remember the first day of school Um, they had, I went to a K through 12 school and, uh, which is very different than American school, which is like elementary, middle school, high school. And I remember being so small, I was nine and seeing all these big kids around me. And I freaked out. Like I had gone from being this kid who loved school to being the kid, like clinging to their mother's clothes and screaming in front of everyone. I was like a very easygoing child. And I took a complete one eighty. And I remember saying, please don't make me go in there. Please don't make me go in there. And um, when I went in there, my life, my life changed. And the way I saw myself also changed forever. Um, I really I think that's when a lot of like self-doubt and anxiety started to form in my life. Uh, And then when I when I turned 14, my mother got remarried and uh, for the third time and the last time maybe who knows uh <laughs> but my stepdad is an amazing human being um and he was living in memphis at the time so that's when we moved from india to memphis and and i was in chennai india which is in the south um and memphis was really interesting because i in while in india i really just missed america like i missed the comfort of america um and And I say that because, you know, India is very different. There's a lot of people. Uh, The government is just like works so differently. Um, You know, the way communities form is just so different, too, than in America. And I constantly felt like I was everyone was watching each other. And I would watch all these high school TV shows again. You know, that kind of reminder of the quintessential American life that I didn't have Um, And I would always think, oh, I can't wait to go back to America so I can, like, go to high school and have a locker and have a boyfriend and like all these like very arbitrary things that I associated with like normal. Um, But when I moved back to the States, like I went to a school that was like 85 percent black. I had never seen a TV show with characters that were like all black. So it's like what I had thought was America had completely shifted into like this, again, another cultural shock of like, wow, this is America's very different than what I had in my head. Um, this is another side of it that I wasn't seeing and mm-hmm. going to school in Memphis taught me. I mean, that was when I re I think I also started really solidifying like, who I was as an American, but then also like my place in the Indian community because the Indian American community I was in was very much like model minority. Like all of our kids, like all the parents were like, all our kids are going to go to Ivy League schools. They're going to play two and (laughs) was, And I was like, I my mom's been married three times. Like I'm already out of the, you know, I'm already different than all of you. And they knew that, you know, so that completely that was just when I had this realization that like, I am not going to make it if I continuously try to fit myself into this idea in my head of what's normal. Um, Mm. I'm only going to make it if I accept where I've come from, what my story is, uh, what my family situation is. And that's the only way I could ever find contentment.
2: Wow. Wow. Okay, so numerous questions come from <laughs> that, as you might imagine yeah uh, you know, you're a child of divorce, and I'm guessing your mom is from a generation uh, just based on you know kind of what your age is uh, mm-hmm. and you know you don't have a 16 year age gap, but you know in that generation, divorce is highly stigmatized mm-hmm. you know in our parents' generation. they are people who stay together not because they should stay together but because of the fact that they are going to be judged, you know, criticized and shamed by the communities they come from. I mean, I I think I, I remember writing this after the whole Indian matchmaking experience saying that, you know, we effectively put a scarlet letter um mm. on people who are divorced in the Indian community. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, witnessing that as a child, what was the experience for your mother uh in terms of reactions from, you know, the community, reactions from family? Um, and how did you guys adapt to that?
1: Mm. I'd say the biggest thing was people seeing my mother as a failure and then me seeing myself also as a failure as a result of that. And as I grew up and I started seeing how unhappy a lot of people were in their marriages, whether that's like my aunts and uncles or another Indian kid's parents, I realized that being married to someone is not does not have to be tied into your self-worth. And that's how I adapted. I, I you know, seeing unhappiness in other people and realizing that people are keeping themselves in a certain situation, not because they think it it not because it feels good, but because they feel like that's what they have to do. And in their heads, what feels worse is being stigmatized. And they're not wrong. My mother was constantly shamed. She was shamed for leaving my dad. She was shamed for... And then she was shamed into getting married for the second time, right? Like, everyone was like, well, if you don't... If your daughter doesn't have a father... And it's not like my dad wasn't around, but my my dad also suffered from bipolar disorder. So it wasn't like he could be there for me in the way... That a lot of other dads could, like someone that doesn't struggle with um, debilitating mental illness. Um, so everyone in our family was telling my mom, like, now you have to get married again. She needs to have a father figure. She need, you know, you need to, you cannot do this on your own. And that kind of forced her to get married to this person. And even though she had doubts about the sustainability of that of that marriage and her own happiness and her own safety, she had to choose between that her safety her happiness my happiness and like being stigmatized for being alone and people constantly berating her for being alone and then what happened she was in an abusive marriage how is that any better than being alone um and so that when when she decided to leave that marriage and then It was again like, okay, now you're moving back in with your parents and you have a daughter and you don't have any prospects for marriage. I think it really took a toll on my mom's self-esteem. And I feel like Indian women in general always have like an internal conflict when it comes to their self-worth because we're not necessarily valued. In uh, the Indian community, you know, it's always like the boys that are valued. They're the breadwinners. They're the ones that take responsibility for their families. You know, women are seen as a burden. Young girls are seen as a burden. Um, And so readapting was sort of getting comfortable with uh, disagreeing with people, getting comfortable with, you know, if someone says that the only way you can be seen as, you know, you can be seen of seen as valuable in the society as if you're a wife or if you're a mother. And if you're having that, you know, quintessential family, ident- like, familial identity. Like, and getting comfortable with disagreeing with that and being like, that is just, that is just a perception. Like, that's just what you perceive. That is not actually a measure of the people within that family unit, what their happiness is, what their security is. Um, And I think... Now, as I'm older, it's it's making it, I've gotten better at like. Criticizing things that are normalized, I've gotten no. better at like questioning things that we see as normal and I've gotten more comfortable with like throwing the word normal away, like I don't think it has to exist. I think a lot of the things that are perceived as normal are determined by structures that are actually really oppressive
0: Hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, when I took the time to reflect on the whole Indian matchmaking experience, uh, you might have read it. I, I wrote this piece called the South Asian, you know, cultural arms race for impressive biodata. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, one of my big sort of realizations, you know, was something you just said, which is that, you know, women are taught to tie their self-worth to whether or not they're married, mm-hmm. uh, which – You know, I I remember saying, you know, if you're an Indian mother reading this, ask yourself, what kinds of choices are your daughters going to make Mm. if you treat them as if though though they have an expiration date? Mm -hmm. Um, And what I wonder, you know, I wrote that from the perspective of a male. Mm
4: -hmm. I don't
2: understand what it's like to be an Indian woman because I'm not in your shoes. What do you have to do to unwind this narrative across an entire culture that has been, you know, basically a dominant narrative for probably hundreds of years at this point?
1: I think it takes resilience. And I think along with that resilience, it's about playing your cards right. So for me, uh, I already have this. My My mother's been married three times. Um, you know, my dad had bipolar disorder. Then he passed away when I was 13. Um, I've moved around so much in my life. Like I have all these things that are like stacked against me. That, you know, in the eyes of anyone who upholds those oppressive Indian values, you know, they would see me as um, less than. So those are the cards I have. Now I get to figure out what other cards I have that can help me. So for me, that was getting an education. Um, And that was also like achievement, like making sure that I'm achieving the things that I want to achieve. It doesn't have to be what other people think as important. But they, they can be things that I think are important and I can do really well. For example, I'm, I'm a writer and I thought to myself, if I'm going to be a writer, I have to make sure I'm the best damn writer. And that made me, you know, write on a blog every day in high school and get discovered by Rookie Mag. That made me go to college and then get my master's degree and finish my master's degree at the age of 23. Like, so even if people do, see me as less than um, and I have all these cards that are, you know, kind of like stacked against me. Then I have all these other things too that um, it's about, I guess it's about picking your battles. (laughs) Like I, I'm not going, if I'm going to be seen as less than because I'm a child of divorce Then I'm going to make sure I get an education and I have that to lean on and anchor me. So that way I can have enough resilience, but then I can also have enough, um i guess i can have enough to also like back me up if anyone tries to tell me that um like i i'm nothing or i'm not valuable because i have an education and i'm worthy of i'm i'm worthy of being independent i'm capable of being independent um so it's like not if you are imperfect in the eyes of other people you can find ways to balance it out And for me, that was education and that was achievement and making sure I'm accomplishing enough to what my value, what my definition of accomplishment is.
2: Yeah. Uh, What did your mom teach you about relationships based on her experience after, you know, two divorces and a third, you know, third marriage? Mm,
1: She, she taught me a lot of things. Um, And I think the first thing that she taught me was, um, Listen to your gut, like, and I think that's how it all goes back to you know accepting the that stigmas are real, but also accepting that they're they can be very wrong um so even if you do feel like you're rushed to get married or you're being rushed to do whatever, you can't listen to that sense of anxiety, you have to also lean into what your gut is telling you. So if there's a red flag, you have to pay attention to it. That red flag is way more important than the perceived comfort of being in a situation that makes you, or in a context that makes you more socially acceptable. Um, Because that is temporary. Like my mother getting married for the second time, there was that comfort of, okay, I'm married again. Like it's fine now. And that quickly... Disappeared when she realized the kind of person she was married to. So that—that's the first thing is listening to your gut, and the other thing is, um, like knowing your value and knowing what you do deserve, and not, um, not giving that up, and always standing by that. I think there are a lot of people who are so entranced by the idea of, like, comfort and, like, the comfort of being in a situation that's societally acceptable that they just settle for anything, and they settle for any situation or any person, Um, and that can get you into a lot of trouble. And then that can ultimately lead you to being in a situation that is no longer societally acceptable, a.k.a. divorce. So, um... Not settling is a huge thing. And then she also told me that it's okay to wait. Uh, And I think this is also another big aspect. I, I think there's this idea of like you need to get married in your 20s and you need to have a stable job in your 20s. And all that needs to happen in your 20s. And my mom's like, you should spend your 20s getting to know yourself and getting to know what you want in life and also understanding your own value. Like you don't just wake up one day and say This this is what I deserve. This is who I am. This is where my value is. That takes time to build, Um, especially if you've been in environments that have completely contradicted uh, the ability to ever build that sense of self-esteem. So um, that's what I'm doing now. It's it's a lot of like reflection, a lot of figuring out what my values are, figuring out what my needs are. Um, and also figure out what, what, what my red flags are, like what red flags do I give off to people. And, um, once, you know, I hit my thirties and I can be a, a little bit more comfortable in who I am. And that's when I can really start thinking more about like who I want my life partner to be. But I, right now I'm in the phase of building my life and building my vision and, the person I am now is going to be completely different than the person I am in my thirties, even from the age of like 32 to 35, that could be completely <laughs> different. So it's, it's just a matter of like not making decisions for a person that I don't know. And I don't know very well. And that's the yeah. future version of me.
2: Wow. Um, I can relate. And I wish every Indian mother on the planet <laughs> was hearing this conversation. Um, so I want to come back to the the second marriage, uh, but let's talk about your time in India. Uh, you know, the reason that struck me so much is because when I was growing up in Edmonton, uh, we had a family friend who, you know, they had two, two sons and they moved to India, you know, much against their son's wishes who, you know, had been socialized and brought up in Canada up until he was mm-hmm. in like third or fourth grade, which is a really, as you probably know firsthand, mm-hmm. that's a really difficult thing. And this poor kid ran away from home in India and he never came back. I mean, I remember we went to India in seventh grade and Mm. he was missing. We went back when I was in ninth grade Mm. and they never found him. And, you know, uh, what I wonder from that is what are the challenges of adapting to something like being in India and going to school in India uh, when you were primarily socialized and brought up in America? I'd imagine that's incredibly disruptive to your childhood.
1: Mm -hmm. it was it was incredibly disruptive and obviously looking back it's i like to focus on the good parts of it but that doesn't take away from the reality of the situation i i think the biggest thing i had to adapt to um and that only happened after i realized what exactly i was adapting to was uh the culture of shame so there is so much shaming in indian culture um and being someone who was arriving there and, you know, I have to make it clear, like not a lot of people know my mom's been married three times. A lot of people think my mom's only been married two times because her second marriage was so horrible. We we just didn't want to talk about it for so long. Um, and at that time, you know, people were under the impression that my mom had only been married once and uh, my dad was still in America. And, you know, I that's it. And then there was a single woman with his daughter. They came from America. And even with with just that little bit of information, there was so much to go off of. Um, I, so I adapted to that culture of shame uh, only by recognizing first what shame was and how I did that was uh, through multiple, multiple ways. The first was um, recognizing that the Indian community is very, it can be very tight knit. Like there, there are so many people in the community, but they're so tightly knit um, that, you know, you can't, you can't get anything past them. Like everyone's watching you. I went to this school that mainly had, you know, politicians, kids, movie directors, kids. The only reason I got in was because my grandmother was classmates, uh, in college with the headmistress. And so she let me into the call, into the school. Um, and so a lot of those, you know, kids who come from like a very like high financial status were at the school. And I came from like a very middle class family. And the the mothers there specifically were very tightly knit. Like they always talked about what was going on. They talked about their kids. They talked about their kids' classmates. They talked about other parents. So when I joined school, it was like, OK, this is I, I immediately became a target for these for these parents, and my mom became a target, too, because she was one of the only women that worked. My mom worked in an office. Uh, most of the mothers were stay at home moms. Um, and so the shame came up when uh, there was a rumor spread around when I was maybe in the fifth grade that I had been seen naked in a room with a boy i don't know who spread this rumor it was probably one of my classmates but then it went it got to the parents um and the parents went to the principal and was like we can't have this this american girl here she's like corrupting our kids with her americanness because they always you know in india they saw american culture as very um corrupt they saw it as like Uh, What what we might see as sexually liberating, they see as, you know, pornographic or inappropriate or whatever. And so they had just assumed because I'm American that I am like a product of that distorted, you know, idea that they had in their heads. And so they were like, we need to keep this girl away from our kids. You know, they would they would call my mother and be like, your daughter is a nuisance, even though I was just doing whatever, and there were rumors being spread around me. It didn't matter that they were rumors. No one even asked if it was just a rumor. They just were so adamant about about like me not being there and me being a bad influence on their kids. So that was... And then and then the shame started coming, too, because they were like, not only was I American, but then I was also a child of divorce. And like, what kind of woman gets divorced? <laughs> like only a woman who doesn't care what other people think and is probably breaking tons of other rules would would do something like that. So, uh, I mean, there was that rumor. There was plenty of other rumors that kids were spreading. You know, one time I like made a prank call to a boy and with like a couple of other friends. And we were like 11, 12 years old, but the mother only took my name out of the whole group. And they were like, Oh, upasana, the American girl, prank calling boys. Like it was, it was also like this whole, like very heteronormative idea of like girls and boys are not supposed to hang out. And I was like very comfortable talking to boys. Cause I wasn't raised with the idea of like, you know, I, I I wasn't raised to think that it was inappropriate to talk to boys or that there was any like sexual um, implicitness with doing so. I just I didn't see it like that. And so it was like things that were very natural to me and then also me just being me was automatically a threat and was automatically reason for me to get shamed and for my mother to be seen as like an incapable mother. And anything that may have been false was never Critically thought about it was sort of just taken as truth and people ran with it and that was just it was so much to adapt to because it was like now I have to adapt to this culture of shame. I have to adapt to also like um, these new ideas that like I didn't even know existed about the way you're supposed to be in society as a girl. Like I never grew up with that in America and my mom never taught me those things. And so that was.
2: I, I always joke that I was like, how is it that a culture who wrote the manual on sex could be so sexually oppressed? I know. Something clearly clearly went wrong. Rumor has it we can blame the British, but right? um, I don't know if that's entirely true. Because I remember there's a Hassan Minaj sketch, uh, you know, skit that he does where he's just like, you know, you're an Indian guy. He's like, your entire life, your parents are like, don't talk to girls, don't mm-hmm. talk to girls. And then you get to like 25 and like, how can you not have a girlfriend?
1: Right, literally. It's like, you salted
2: our game our entire life. That's why. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Let's talk about coming back. Uh, What was the reverse culture shock like of coming back?
1: Mm. So first was like, I, even when I was in America, I was in like a majority white community. That was like the first nine years of my life. And I had a lot of, um, I had always associated America with like white people. And in India, like, Whiteness is celebrated, not in terms of race, but in terms of like color, like being fair, (laughs) right? Like colorism and racism are two completely different things. But when they join forces, it's like even more um, like, I guess, harmful. And so I had also had that idea growing up that like, oh, white people are so cool. Americans are so cool. They're so free. They get to do whatever they want. Like, um, And like they their their parents let them go to parties and stuff. And obviously a lot of that idea um, about America had been built off of TV shows and TV shows are not necessarily a reflection of reality. And so the reverse culture shock came when I went to a school that was 85 percent black and I went to a school that was very under resourced. And I was seeing the side of America that I had no idea existed. And obviously, like, even if I hadn't gone to a school that was 85 percent black, I'm sure there still would have been quite cognitive. There would have been cognitive dissonance between what I was watching on TV and my reality either ways. But going to a school that was 85 percent black, like the Indian community is so anti black once again, in terms of race and color.
0: And
3: so
1: (laughs) I was also the only one of the two Indian kids in the school. At some point that became three, but, you know, it was a school of like almost 2000 kids. And then there was me and like one other Indian kid. And so the culture shock came with um, one realizing that, that the black culture exists and it, At that time, like was not being reflected in our TV shows and our movies. And if it was, it was completely caricaturized. Um, And the other culture shock came from recognizing why our school was under resourced, why so many of the the black students were in quote unquote standard classes while I was in honor honors classes and AP classes And then the other culture shock came from seeing police in my school and walking through a metal detector every morning and going on lockdown because there was a gun threat or a bomb threat or a shooter threat. That was America to me after a point. Not the TV shows, not white people being happy and doing their barbecues and their in their four-person family home with their dog, like all that imagery just dissolved and became this. And that was very hard to adapt to because in India, I all I wanted was to go back to America. And then when I'm back, I'm like, this is not the America that I remembered. And this is not the America that I had in mind. And that was just... I mean, that's when I, you know, started reading more about the history of America. I mean, obviously, when I was in India, I was learning about Indian history and world history. And when you come to America, you're reading U.S. history and, you know, your textbooks may not even be that good. So you're kind of just flailing, trying to figure out what the truth of your country is. And yeah. I had wanted to be American for so long. And then I realized what being American actually meant. Mm
2: hmm. It's funny you mentioned textbooks not telling the truth. I remember I read Howardson's People's History of the United States, which mm-hmm. had apparently been banned in AP American history classes all across the United States because it was considered anti-American.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and when yep. you read that book, it's disturbing. You know, when you go and trace 200 years of history, uh, you find out things that are unpleasant to admit are in the history of your country. Right. So – Second marriage, uh, you mentioned, was abusive, and I think that what I've found, at least uh, in Indian culture, is that we don't talk about things like this again because of stigma. We don't talk about mental health. Uh, what are we not seeing? What do you want people to see? Uh, you know, behind the scenes of Indian families that often get ignored until somebody like Mira Nair comes along and makes a film.
1: that's so funny you say that i literally just watched monsoon wedding like two days ago
2: (laughs) (laughs) that was literally the that was literally the, the the point of reference for me
1: love that that's a great coincidence um i think the first thing is the tight hold that the patriarchy has on indian culture like obviously the patriarchy is this invisible structure that's manifested through individual actions, maybe policy sometimes too, um, universally. Um, And in the Indian culture, that manifests through this sense of, you know, like boys being the most important and the most, uh, like, I guess, uh, dependable, you know, members of a family, like, you have a son and he's he's gonna grow up and take care of everyone, sort of thing. And what that does, it it creates a very toxic sense of masculinity within men, which can result in the harm of not just the man himself, but everyone around him. So uh, you know, apart from you know, my mom, my mom's second marriage, I I know a lot of my Indian friends have dads who are not emotionally available and if they do it's like the most amazing special thing in the world instead of being what's supposed to be normal for any child to grow up with um, there's a lot of not talking about your emotions or not talking about you know mental health isn't a thing that's discussed in Indian households like a lot of parents will say Oh, you have anxiety. I didn't even we didn't even have that word growing up. Like <laughs> you word know, didn't exist. Like you're stressed. What are you stressed about? I'm the one paying the mortgage. So there's a lot of that. And that is very like tied in very closely with masculinity, because there is this universal idea of like men are not supposed to show their emotions. Men are not supposed to talk about their feelings. Men are you know, and then what that does is it creates a community of men that one because they've been because they've been like s- celebrated from the moment that they're born. Uh, it creates like a, a sense of entitlement, um, and also you th- there's a lot of you know like young Indian boys with sisters. They can see the difference between how they're treated versus how their sisters are treated. Uh, and that can also contribute to a sense of entitlement or even like uh, this like in this bias against women and what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do and what type of you know what 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 their future is because of their gender and then what it also does is other than creating a community of men like that it also um it also makes room for for secrets like when you live in a in a culture that you're not supposed to talk about anything that's um, messy or uncomfortable. There's a lot of space for secrets. And I think that's why there's so much abuse in Indian households. And no one talks about it, especially when it comes to women being abused, abused. It's, you know, if you look at the, there's some Pew Research Center did a poll of like the marital status or like how many Indian households are like, two person households um, and it's like almost 90 percent like most Indian kids come from a household with two parents. But I wonder if we came from a community where people talked about mental health, talked about toxic masculinity and, you know, refused abuse as um, just a part of life. And that's just how it is. And, you know, marriage is either going to is going to be whatever it is. Um, I wonder if that number would be greatly reduced, if there would be more divorces in the Indian community because of that, or even maybe less marriages in the first place at a young age. I it's just all of it is so messy and it's so intertwined that when you see something horrible happen to someone else or to yourself, you just don't even know which part of the system to blame.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, being raised in an environment like that, uh, you know, with everything else that also happened prior, how do you begin to recover your sense of self-worth?
1: I don't know. I feel like I'm still working on it sometimes because it's... A part of me is like in order to recover my sense of self-worth, like I have to be more comfortable with talking about it. Like, yes, for three years of my life, I lived in a very abusive household where my mother was being abused and I had to, I know. And I was just a kid and I was, you know, observing that or like, my mother protected me as much as she could, but like kids are observant and they figure things out quite easily. Um, and I was also like a very intuitive kid. um, So, you know, a lot of my self-worth was affected because of feeling like my situation wasn't normal, even though, like I said, abuse is quite common. It's just not talked about. Doesn't mean it's okay, but that doesn't mean it's uncommon. Um, I think talking about it is what is going to help me. But I sometimes just don't know where to start or how to start. Because it's not something that you can just say without people being like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Or, oh, my gosh, like, are you okay?" You know, because I am okay. I'm breathing. I'm fine. Like, I'm very happy. It's just that this one part of my life was very scary and uh, very like it completely changed who I am as a person. Like, I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't gone through that as a child. So I think building my my self-worth comes from one acknowledging that it's not uncommon what i went through just be, it's just that there's not many people who talk about it but also two um the more i talk about it perhaps the more the more easily i can embrace that part of my life um without you know feeling like i deserved it or whatever because it's not like um I hate to say that like my trauma defines me and it defines who I am. Like, I don't think that's the case. I think it's how you deal with it and the lessons that you learn about life through it. If you let yourself, that is what helps you rebuild your self-worth.
2: Oh, how old were you when your mom got remarried for the third time?
1: I was 14.
2: Okay. And, you know, having seen, you know, two marriages that didn't work, uh, what was your sort of initial reaction to the idea that your mom was going to get remarried again? And, and what um skepticism did you have, or what sort of protective mechanisms did you have when
1: this new person comes into your life? Mm, it's a good question. I mean, the biggest thing was like I was getting a stepbrother. And that that's what I wanted, right? Like was the nuclear family, like dad, mom, brother, sister. Like that's perfect. And That's what I was getting. So there was a little bit of excitement with that of like, oh, now maybe I can hide under this veil of normalcy and I don't have to talk about. And like by the time my mom was getting married for the third time, like my dad had passed away. So it kind of felt like, like I missed my dad and I like really wanted, I really wanted some sense of normalcy. And like my mom getting married for the third time was giving me that. And so that was exciting. Like the prospect of hiding under the veil of normalcy. Um, but the, I guess the m- coping mechanisms or the protective mechanisms uh, kind of came about when I was in that situation. Like I didn't really feel like I needed them at all. Cause I was so excited by the idea until I was actually in that situation. And I was like, Oh wow. Now I have to, now I have to be on the lookout for like anything that could go wrong or anything that could cause me to lose this sense of normalcy. And so it's like whenever my mom and my stepdad have like a very normal argument, like I would, I would freak out and I'd be like, Oh no, it's happening again. And I would just like hide in my room or just do whatever. And then, and then it wouldn't happen. Like it wouldn't, it would be fine. And so I feel like in a way I was always ready. Like my fighter f- fight or flight was like always ready to get triggered at like any point. And I was pretty much in like survival mode, like even in high school, like I was in term that survival mode that I was at home, like came with me to high school, like in school. So like the way I was communicating with my peers and the friendships I was making was very reflective of like my state of mind of like this could go away at any second. And then what am I supposed to do? Like I might have to leave again. But over time, like I just built trust with my stepdad and I noticed that he had a very deep respect for like stability And a deep respect for um, family and like depending on one another. So that really that really helped. But like my parents have been married for 10 years now and only maybe when I left to college. So after maybe like four years, did I feel like I could kind of relax and like this was my life now instead of feeling like, okay, I have to be ready for something to go wrong at any given moment.
2: Wow. Um, is your a stepdad Indian?
1: He is, he's Singaporean actually, but he's of okay. Indian descent.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was wondering if he wasn't, I was wondering if, like, you know, how you integrate, you know, different cultures. Mm. Uh, let's talk about your, your, uh, you know career trajectory, uh, you know, post high school. I mean, you mentioned that you started a blog and started writing in high school, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's not normal for most high school kids, uh, <laughs> to be that ambitious. So, what was the narrative about careers around your house? So, I mean, it doesn't sound you know, like you had the typical doctor, or engineer narrative.
1: <laughs> no. And it's funny because like in the beginning, that was definitely that was actually the narrative from my mom. And I think that came from like her feeling like her life was always in flux, that she just wanted me. She was like, s- to have this like sense of stability. So growing up, she was like, you should do something like if you want to be a doctor, that's great, but you should you should study something that's going to give you a sense of stability. Um, and that was like economics. My mom was like, you should study economics because my uncle studied economics and he's doing really well in his life. My grandpa studied economics um, and my mom studied English. And she's like, look where English got me, which I don't <laughs> think I'm Like, I'm please don't say that the arts are dying. Um, but. So in the beginning, the career trajectory was like very like, you need to do the thing that's going to keep you stable. Don't dream, be- but only out of fear. Like my mom just wanted me to be stable. But then as I started, like I've always been writing. I've been writing since the age of five. Like I would make up stories. I would do like adaptations from TV shows I saw. Like, um, But then when I started writing personal essays, that's when my mom was like, oh, this is like, this makes you so happy. You should just do that. Um, And so it kind of came to a point where I formed this career vision of like, I'm going to study something like economics that will keep me, that will allow me to have like a philosophy about the way the world works that I can lean on and depend on um, tangibly in terms of getting a job. Like it is easier to get a job with an economics degree Um, But also intangibly, like now I can have an understanding of the way the world works and like all of that. And then the other side of it was I'm going to use that um, economics degree as an anchor to do what I actually like doing, which is writing. And later that became acting. And so my mom came to a point where she was like, you need to do what makes you happy because the culprit of everything that's happened in my life as your mother is me not choosing myself and me not choosing, you know, what I'm good at. My mother was a ballerina and she had to give that up. She was a ballerina for like 20 years and she wanted to like be a professional dancer and she couldn't because she got into this marriage with my dad and, you know, her in laws were very demanding. And she was like, what if I just said no? Um so she was like you need to do what makes you happy but you need to be really really good at it. Like if you're going to be a writer like I said earlier like you need to be the best writer and that's like that's the mentality I I took and ran with. So um my career vision is is that. It's uh practical practicality mixed with um openness toward myself and also toward the world. And always having something that I can lean on in case things go ari, but also knowing that I have these gifts that I'm supposed to use and that will make me happy if I use them.
2: Hmm. Funny, you and I have the economics degree in common.
1: You have an economics degree? That's, well, That's awesome.
2: An environmental econ degree because my grades were oh, yeah. so bad at Berkeley that I, you know, it was the only major where... Uh, you know, I could get in with all the prerequisites I'd taken. Funny enough, I know a lot more about economics now than I did back then. Like I've literally sat down and read the wealth of nations cover to cover. And because I run a business, it makes so much more sense.
1: Right. Real life application.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Uh, well, I have two final questions for you. Mm. What impact has this had on the, you know, the way that you were raised and the experience that your mother had and the experience you had growing up had on your own relationships?
1: Wow. Um, I'd say the first... Do you mean like romantic relationships or yes. like all kinds? Romantic? romantic
2: relationships, yeah.
1: Um, well, up until literally last year, the impact was like pretty, pretty negative. Like my mom had given me all these lessons like I had talked about earlier, but I wasn't really sure how to implement them. So up until like last year, I feel like my subconscious was really like taking me for a trip in that you know, that sense of normalcy that I always craved as a kid, like I carried it with me into like early adulthood. So I was always looking for relationships that that looked good. Like I wasn't really worried about how I felt with the person. I was more worried about how the relationship looked. And if it looked good to other people, I felt good. Um. So I had like two major relationships in college. And the first person, like I felt like, the whole image was like power couple image. Like I really wanted that uh, feeling of like finding my significant other in college and like getting married and like everyone being like, wow, you've always had it together. And um, that, you know, after a year dissolved Um, and what I took from that was, okay, now I can't be so focused on utility. Like, Relationships can't be all about utility and how well you work together and um, how many cool things you can do together that make other people impressed. It has to be more than that. But uh, once again, I had learned a lesson but wasn't exactly sure how to implement it. So my second uh, relationship in college was with a white person. And that relationship, while I was in it, was I mean, amazing. Like I felt really secure and I felt loved and his family was amazing. But when the relationship ended, I realized that I wasn't actually being treated the way that I should have been in that he came from a nuclear family and he secretly was not even secretly actually quite openly. I think it was just more uh like, I guess, uh, what's the word for it? Covert. Um, But there was like a lot of covert racism. They kind of saw me as like, oh, the Indian girl who had a lot of problems. uh, How lucky is she to be dating this person in our family who's so secure and stable? Because, you know, he was a very sheltered person in comparison to me. He had lived in the same house his whole life, in the same town his whole life. He wasn't really interested in ever leaving, you know, the state of Illinois. Uh, And so I think a part of him and a part of his family was like, okay, she's lucky to be with him because we're giving her a sense of stability that her own family couldn't give her. Like, we're showing her what stability looks like. And I think I met them halfway because I was secretly insecure about my family background, even though I've been openly working toward accepting it and embracing it, I was still insecure. And I still had that like childlike mentality of like, Oh, I just want to be normal. I just want to be like the American sitcom that I had grown up seeing and feeling so comforted by. Um, and then, so once we broke up a lot of the stuff that happened in that relationship, I started being able to identify as wrong or a uh, racist even. And, um, I mean, one of the things he would, he said to me when we broke up was like, you don't get along with any of my friends. I was like, yeah, all your friends are like white dudes that play video games all day. Like, what do you expect me to do? Like, what, what, what do I have in common with them? Like, um, and so I loved that while I was in the relationship, I loved how being with him almost felt like I could hide behind his identity and, in a way, like I was being accepted by this part of society that I could never get access to. But then once we broke up, I think I realized that that's all that was.
2: Wow. Wow. Um, Well, (laughs) this has been mind blowingly insightful and thought provoking. Uh, uh, So I have one final question for you, which Mm -hmm. I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's the person's ability to um, be themselves no matter what context they're in or what situation they're in that might force them to be otherwise. It's the resilience of staying true to oneself and Acknowledging what's going on in in your gut that's what makes someone unmistakable, and that's what makes them get through anything that might defy their natural way of being
2: Wow, uh, kind of left me speechless um. Uh- I can't thank you enough for <laughs> one, you know, writing uh, and, and telling me about your story, but also taking the time to join us and share it with our listeners. Um, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and everything that you're up to?
1: Um, you can find me on Instagram at Upasna or just on my website, dot Thank you so much for having me, Srini.
2: Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with
0: that.